Okay, welcome to season two, episode 13 of Never Not Creative. Lucky 13. Oh, <clears throat> didn't realise it was, yeah, 13. Depends on how superstitious I mean, you, you are, could I just guess. make it season three, episode one. Oh. Or we could, yeah, Too just... late. <laughs> anyway, this one will be lucky. We will buck the trend. Um, I'm Andy Wright. I'm Sarangwin. And today we're here with Emily Cohen, who is a advisor and consultant to creative businesses and um, just recently I think last year wrote a book called Brutally Honest. Welcome Emily. Hi thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. You're also fresh off a tour mm -hmm. in Australia which we missed which was yes. also part of the reason for being quite selfish and getting you onto the podcast. <laughs> yeah no it was awesome. I was in the I spoke to the Creative Mornings in Melbourne. It was fantastic. So to kick off, um, because obviously, as uh, people would have recognised, you're not from around these parts. <laughs> yeah. Um, can you give us a little bit about your history in the in the creative industry and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So I'm from New York. If you can't hear from the lovely accent I have, and um, I went to design school and was a designer out in the real world in various environments. I worked in magazine, I worked in, in a corporate in-house team, and I worked in design, designed a small design firm. And pretty quickly, within like seven years, I kind of realized that I wasn't good at design or I didn't have a passion for it. Um, and, and I was in a crisis, like, what can I do? And what I realized, what I did is I just simply, this is a long time ago and I won't say how long, but um, I was struggling with what I wanted to do with my life. And I was very involved in the design industry. All my friends were in the design industry. I cared about design. I loved design and I was kind of like, what do I do? And I just asked everybody I knew, what should I do? And everybody said, you're really good at kicking people's butts. So yeah, so they basically were saying that I'm really good at just kind of managing people and getting people organized. And, and they said that that's what you should do. And so I just basically went to a bunch of design studios and said, look, you know, I would love to do this. There wasn't project managers or even account managers within creative teams there were in larger agencies but not in the smaller design firms more branding and design driven firms um and so i sort of just created this job and got seven job offers in a week because nobody else was doing what i was doing and still had a design passion so i took the highest paying job and uh, worked there for seven years and pretty quickly i'm sure this is like this in australia but in new york the design industry is extremely incestuous Everybody knows everybody else. And the word spread pretty quickly that there was this woman out there that knew the business of design. Um, and so I started building a consulting practice pretty almost pretty quickly. And so started it about, yeah, I don't want to say how long, but yeah, 30 years ago. <laughs> uh, and I've been consulting ever since. So you've been doing this a really long time. Yes. Um, and so you've, you must have seen a lot of changes over the creative industry over all that time that you've been doing this. What do you think? is the biggest challenge facing the industry right now and how has you how have you seen that change oh yeah i think every every few years the industry does definitely change um some are good and some bad i actually think right now we're really struggling uh it's a, actually a good question to ask me right now because i've been thinking about that a lot i just gave a talk about this topic in fact in fact about just like some of the challenges that are facing our industry a lot of the challenges are our own fault um or as a result of us being people pleasers. So I think, I think there's a few challenges. One is that we are, there, it's, a, it's a very saturated market, right? And that's not our fault. There's just a lot of people who are all designers owning their own firms. So these millennials that are coming out or the younger generation, super smart, 
and they all pretty much start their own firms pretty quickly. And so there's just a lot more competition out there than there ever was. And there's just not as much work to fill the need. So I think that's one of them. And because we're a saturated market, and I think this is our fault, uh, there's a lot of people who are practicing business practices that are just hurting our industry. And they're not thinking about the greater good of our industry and how we're positioned. So they're pricing low or they're they're accepting contracts that are really hurting our industry. Like there's a, a big thing right now is there's a lot of contracts from the larger corporations where you can't, at least in America, you can't promote the work. Like you can't use the client's name, you can't show the work. And if we can't do that, then we mm. can't market ourselves. And a lot of firms, big and small, are signing these contracts. So I think there's a lack of... Um, respect for ourselves and a lack of pushback. I think we're allowing clients to walk all over us. And because of that, we've become more executional than value added. I, obviously, there's exceptions to the rule, and that's going to be my clients. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I think that's a challenge. I think that there's a lot of firms with, and they're not doing this intentionally, but they're doing things that are just hurting us as an industry and then hurting themselves. So I think that's definitely one of the biggest challenges, the saturated market and just practicing business practices that are hurting ours. What, why do you think those contracts are going out there? Because, well, it's sort of like in the old days, and I don't know if you remember this because um, I do, but in the old days when illustration, you know, when stock, the stock illustration market came out, right, it kind of decimated illustrators. It's because illustrators allowed this to happen and didn't think about the contracts and, and the rights and all that. And I think it's very similar. I think that I think clients are taking advantage in the, and, and they're, they're one client tried it and one agency accepted it and then another client said, I'll try that and then another agency and then it sort of just happened where no one's pushing back and so it's becoming more acceptable. Does that make sense? So it's I think it's just because yeah. other companies have realized that they're doing it. I think some of it's uh, legitimate, right? So it's for those, those companies that are doing, like you're doing proprietary work that's internal or it's before a product is launched then of course you don't want to share that stuff. You know, I completely get that. So that's like a legitimate thing. If it's a proprietary or in-house kind of, you know, B2B kind of like, or actually just, you know, something internal, then I get that. But there's a lot, uh, most companies, I think the reason why they do that is, is because they want to sort of own the creative. They think they, they don't want anybody else to know that they hired other people. They want their creative team to be credited. And I think the other reason is designers are just accepting it without pushing back. Yeah, I, I think that the companies wanting to take the credit is also driven by the lack of understanding and education around how much good design costs, because quite often there will be the backlash to a company, which is, you know, how much did you spend on, you know, the, the latest brand, for example, um, but at the same time, you're making redundancies or you're, you know, um, pulling out a market or you're increasing the price or whatever it is. And so, you know, and, and stuff like that happens in the media and actually the design industry never responds. Yeah. Um, it, it, it never actually comes out and says, well, you know, this is the time it takes to do that stuff. Yes, the output might look like this small thing that's, you know, sits in a Twitter avatar, <laughs> but it, it actually costs years of experience yeah. and, and time. Yeah. And actually, I think that's a really good point. I don't think we do enough as an industry and, and all the industry associations across the world, they're not doing enough to promote the, our value to the business community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's their primary role and they're not doing that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's definitely like for Nevernot Creative that we sort of have three big 
pillars, I think, and one of them is around the misunderstood value that design can can offer. Um, I've actually got a question about that a little bit later on as well. One thing that I found quite interesting was you talked about undercutting and the chase for the cool work. Yeah. Um, and like I've been there and done that, yeah. and I think many people will have done, but you do it because of the opportunity in the moment, um, the fact that it could be, yes, cool, it builds your portfolio, but we don't think necessarily about the effects that that can have on the industry as a whole as other people miss out getting paid for proper work. Yep. Um, do you have, did you have any sort of specific experiences of that? And is there a way out of it? Um, I, look, I think that's, a, that's another thing that we, we well, want to do that. Like we want to do cool work and that's fine to do as long as we're educating our clients that this is the exception, not the rule. I had a client just today call me about, you know, this very, very small budget project that was going to be, you know, it's for a product and they, because my client is an influencer, they, you know, were paying him a low fee, but he would get like royalties on the product and, but it was extremely low fee. And so we just simply told them like, that is not our normal fee. And we just sort of educated him to simply say, this is a one-time thing. We're not doing this normally. This is our normal price, right? So I think there's a lot of things that we could do just to, to take those projects on because we should, right? We should do some fun projects once in a while, purely for creative, to get our creative juices flowing. But I think it's about telling the client this is the exception, not the rule. Um, and just, I also think it's not only hurting our industry, but it's also hurting ourselves. And I don't think people realize that, that once you start a relationship with somebody at a low price, it's very hard to build up your fees because the word spreads that you're cheaper. So I just had a client yesterday who was bidding on a very big development project and they had been recommended by another development client. And so the, the first client she worked with who, was the, who referred her, she had done it for a low budget. So when she was mm. referred to this new company, I'm sure the companies were talking because they were surprised by the fee because all of a sudden it was higher, right? Uh, so the word, I think we don't realize that people do spread the word and you start to be known for being cheap rather than good. And also, look, I think money reflects value. You know, so the cheaper you are or the lower price you are, the, then they, they'll take advantage of you. And I have that whole thing in my book about that I don't think people realize that if a client pays less, they're going to, the abuse factor and the art direction, fa art direction factor goes up. I've, I've definitely in, found that in the past, the clients that pay more are less fussy and less Yes. They ask for fewer kind of changes or they're more, they, they kind of trust you more because they pay the higher price. But yeah. when you've had to kind of, because you really want the work or the industry is low budget and you're doing it for a little bit more love, say like arts or something a bit more exciting from our point of view, it, the effing around is <laughs> just. Yeah. yeah, it's true. I mean, the, the arts clients often are the ones that try and do this. And I know that when I've worked on them in the past, we have made a point of saying, this is how much this is worth. Yeah. Um, you need to understand it. And when we've been able to get that across, there is much more uh, trust yeah. in the relationship because I think that's ultimately what you're trying to build with that stuff. Yeah. But if you're, yeah, if you're dealing with someone who's just after something on the cheap, even if you're just having a conversation with someone and you're first, the, one of the first things you talk about is, oh, we don't have much money and, you know, it's low budget and we need to do this, like, you know, quickly and cheaply. It's like, run away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I have a couple of points there. I think the first thing is we could also, we should always, if we do those projects, and we will, 
you know, I'm, I'm realistic here. I understand there's going to be some really great projects along the way or projects that we care about that are helping the world or whatever. Um, that's fine to do, but we should always think about what, it, what else can we get? What is it in for us? And so I think we could negotiate with our clients better to say, okay, we're not making the money, but here's what we want. We want to go to the gala. You know, we want to sit at the table where all the big donors are. We want to get credit. We want to share publicity. There's a lot of things we can do in, in lieu of money to show value. So I think, I think that's something that designers can do more often is think, use their creative minds to think about how can we negotiate in a creative way. And the other thing is I think designers in general, this is why I love my job, are really good people, right? They, they are decent people who want to help the world. So there's a ton of like low-budget nonprofit work out there, and they all want to do nonprofit work, cultural work, which I think you're calling arts work, um, yeah. and restaurant work. That's the three areas that designers always want to do. And, true. <laughs> and, and they do it for nothing, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and that is a challenge because they have to realize, and I don't know if they always realize that these companies, even nonprofits, they make money from your services. Yes. So you help raise funds, you know, you help increase donations, you do a lot of things, you help attract, you know, customers to their restaurants, you do things that have value. And you're not just making things pretty. And I think sometimes designers don't communicate what I like to call success metrics, mm -hmm. which is actual data about how the work has demonstrated value for your clients. Right. So if we do more of that as well, I think that will help us as an industry. And nobody, there's very few firms that do that successfully. Yeah, I, I might actually jump down to a, a question around that stuff, which is, you know, do you because I'm a big believer in what you just said. Do you have any examples of clients that you work with who have successfully understood their clients' goals and how the work that they do impacts them? And, and, and the thing is, I think that this sounds like a no-brainer. It's like, oh, uh, the work that we're going to do for you is going to make you money. But often it starts, it begins in a conversation, but actually throughout the project it gets lost. And because often the relationship is over sometimes before the work hits the market, that evaluation and that understanding of whether you contributed to the success for the client is never come, is never returned to. Yeah. Um, are there people that you work with that do that well? Um, I think there are. I don't think they all do it consistently well. So they might have one or two case studies that do that well and then they forget. <laughs> so I don't know if I know anybody that does that consistently well, but there are mm -hmm. a few that do it. I think a lot of it's around designers Get, like they're done with the project, they, they're like, I'm done, I need to move to the next fire, right? I need to move to the next project. And they don't think to call the client six months later or a year later to say, hey, how did it go, right? So some of it's around follow through, but there's a lot of great examples of metrics that my clients have collected that are, you know, surprising that you can get if you simply ask. Here's a stupid example, but I have a client that works for restaurants, right? And they specialize in hospitality. And one of the metrics they have is that something like 90% of their restaurant clients overall are in business after two years. And that's a kind of good metric in the restaurant space, right? <laughs> you know, so that was a good metric. It wasn't specific to a project. It was specific to all the clients they worked with. And I thought that was a genius way of saying like, yeah, hey, we, have, we work with successful restaurants and we can't take credit for everything, but we can we contributed to that success. Digital projects are much easier because you have a lot of you know online analytics. That's not everything. You know, it's about increased donations, attendance at events, 
you know, how quickly things are sold out. There are things that are not measurable, but most things are in some ways. Even branding, even though that's hard to measure, you know, certainly media attention is a good one. If it's gotten positive media attention, um, that helps a little bit, right? If it's repositioned, if the if the result of, of the positioning of or the new brand changed their business model or increased something, that's a great way to say that even though you didn't necessarily be responsible for the whole, you know, success, you contributed. I think that's the other thing why design, this is what prevents designers from collecting that data besides simply getting busy, uh, is that they think, well, I didn't, you know, designers are sort of oddly humble and mm-hmm. they don't want to take credit for things if they didn't do it hundred percent themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think they have to get over that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to jump to another question um, about in-house salaries. I think you mentioned somewhere about them going up um, and there being sort of more. Exorbitant was the word. (laughs) What I use? I'd love to have an exorbitant. (laughs) So, Andy? (laughs) Um, I guess you could frame it also as a reflection of value that design's adding and so companies are now investing more into their internal teams. Yes. Um, but it does mean that the agency model might suffer, whereas oh, yeah. the design industry as a whole or for individual designers and as a career path, that could be seen as a good thing. How do you think that that uh, trend will continue? I don't know. If, I mean, look, tre- trends come and go. So this one, I think, is going to go eventually when they realize that they can't, uh, can't, can't keep people at these salaries. At some point, they leverage, you know, they... they um, level out and they can't keep increasing the salaries. I just think it's right now there's a lack really good creative talent out there. There's so many design schools, right? There's so many design schools and they're not, and there's so much to teach right now that there's a lack of good creative skills out there. I think the ones that are superstars are getting paid what they're worth. They should be paid a lot, but those superstars are harder to find. And so I think to lure the best talent in-house team, especially the tech firms, are paying crazy salaries, which they, I, which I love, but that's hurting the smaller firms who can't afford to hire these people. So I have a perfect example of this. You know, a client of mine is in San Francisco, and San Francisco has extremely high salaries in general because it's a high cost of living. It's one of the most expensive cities to live in. And um, what's ha- one of my clients hired somebody right out of school who was a superstar, was going to pay them in American dollars about 70000 which is a lot for somebody right out of school. And mm. that person got lured by another in-house tech team for 110000 right out of school. And he couldn't compete with that. There's no way. And already he was paying a lot. Um, so, you know, I'm seeing that a lot where people, you know, these young designers are lured in by, they're lured in by the money because it's good money. And who would want that good money? You know, and especially with student debt, the way it is, especially in America, People, you know, have to take these salaries. And I love that the salaries are reflecting value, but creative, smaller creative firms can't afford that, yet they're charging lower and lower, not higher and higher. So that's their own fault, right? So that's where we're hurting ourselves. We're not charging enough to pay for the salaries we should be paying. Mm. And is this, you know, I guess this is also related to the billable hour, really, right? Like there's no scale in that model. So the companies that are hiring in-house talent 
um, have scale in their business models. You know, they, they've they found a way to take one thing to many, whereas the creative industry still charging by the hour or at least costing by the hour. Um, and it's, it's impossible to achieve the economies of scale that some of those big companies do. So does, does the model have to change if actually we're going to get ourselves out of this situation as a kind of agency services provider? Well, I would say, I guess it depends if you're talking about creative and, or agency. So in America, that's not as true. Most people in America are charging flat fees, not based on hours, right? So they don't reveal how many hours or how much they charge per hour. The exception being larger agencies that have retainers and have hourly relationships. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if the model has to change. Um, as Are those much- flat, how do they how do they get to those flat fees in in from your experience? There's a lot of factors. There's no magic number, right? So a lot of it's about thinking about the end value and how important it is to the client and what they're going to use it for and how it's going to affect their business. So, you know, one of the greatest great examples I can give is if you are doing, you know, a hotel branding, right? Where you're doing all the hotel's entire, like, communications and branding and signage and, you know, all the in-house amenities and everything. You could ask them how much would it be to, if you booked a room for a year, how much would that be? And that would be your fee. So if you can put it in context with the client's business model, that helps a lot. Nobody really does that. Um, but it's a great way to think about it. A lot of it's gut instinct that over the time you realize it. It's definitely about capturing the hours but not showing the hours to make sure that you're basing it on, not on predictions because you can never predict the hours. So I don't ever recommend spending time trying to figure out how much time it's going to take because you can never figure that out. I don't always cracks me up how long designers spend trying to do all these spreadsheets about how long things take. This is why we, (laughs) it doesn't work, but this is why we have time tracking because we can look in, we can look at historical records. So part of it is making sure that we keep our historical records. And if we are specialists and have done similar work, we could simply look back and say, okay, this website at this size and at this techno- you know, functionality cost me this much on average. That's how much I charge. And maybe I can charge more because it has more value, right? So I think it's a combination of different factors. One is instinct. Two is looking at past historical records. It's asking the clients about their budgets, and being open and honest about budgets with clients before you write a proposal. So many designers don't have com- good conversations with clients about budgets. And and that's just, you know, when when clients say they don't have budgets, that's, uh, I hope you don't mind, but I think it's bullshit. You know, mm-hmm. most, yeah. every client knows, a, has a budget, whether they have a budget internally or they have a gut instinct, they always have a number in mind. And so trying to get to that number is very helpful to see if it's even a realistic expectation. Yeah. Um, and you do know that because the minute you send them a proposal, uh, they tell you, oh, I wasn't thinking that much. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you were thinking yeah. something. Right. So it's a, it's a, there's a strategy around about asking about budget and you have to, designers, again, they're afraid to ask tough questions and it's not that tough a question. <laughs> uh, and so I think there's just a lot of factors to pricing. It's not, designers just want that magic answer and there is no magic answer. But the more you know your industry and who you work for, the more comfortable you will be with the numbers. That leads us on pretty well to just why do why do creatives suck at business? What do you think? What do you think about us? Um, I actually don't know if that's true anymore. I think that's a generational thing. I think like older people over forty maybe are not as good, 
But the younger generation under 40 is so, they're really good at business, actually. I think they're genius. Um, my business has changed dramatically over the years because now my clients are smarter than, and smarter, much smarter than they ever were. Um, the only reason, I don't know if they suck at business. I think they, they struggle with some common problems like asking about budget, pushing back. They're mostly, designers I think are people pleasers. And because of that, they just want clients to like them and they don't know how to push back. And the other thing is, I think the big thing is that creatives, no matter how good they are in business, if you are both doing the business, so if you're negotiating as well as designing and building client relationships, it's hard to do both, Yeah. right? Because you, if you're building client relationships and you spend all this time trying to woo this client, right, and kind of get them to work with you and, and then they want to work with you and designers are like, oh, they want to work with me. They like me. Oh, you know. They love that. And then so they negotiate very badly because they're just so happy somebody wants to work with them. I don't know if designers are bad at it. I think if they are doing both, if they're doing too many roles, it's very hard to do all of that. Um, but I do think designers can always get better and they just need to focus on more business skills. And also, I think a little bit's just we don't teach it enough. But honestly, I will tell you, I think the millennials and, you know, anybody under 40, are genius. They're really good at it. How come? Um, I think it's, I think it's just, there's so much online learning and so much sharing. I think transparency is a big one. Um, all these great creatives, all my clients talk to each other, right? So they all talk to each other and they learn from each other. And there's just great, great amount of transparency in our industry that I think is fantastic. Um, and so they, they learn from each other's mistakes. There's a lot of smaller groups like creative mornings and ladies one in design and there's tons of little small groups that everybody meets and talks about stuff. So I think that's one of the biggest reasons is that we we're learning from each other. Oh yeah. When we've moved from like, you know, I guess the older generations were taught where it was very much a, someone stands at the head of a room and everybody else listens. And there's, there's then not much more kind of goes on apart from that. Whereas learning now is much more <clears throat> collaborative kind of, even play-based and it's all kind of role modeling and scenarios and, and obviously that's probably you know played a played a part it's it's a huge part like my generation was super protective and everything was about confidentiality and you know they don't want to share their met you know now like employees will share everything with their clients with their employees mm. you know mm. which i think is fantastic mm. they tell their employees how much they charge they tell them what their budgets are you know and i think that as a result those that have jobs are learning from their employee employers as well, right? There's a lot of top-down learning that's happening. And that's a, that's a good thing, right? Like, so I definitely yeah. embrace the transparency, Me too. letting everyone know what's going on inside a business. There are still, I mean, we still, you know, see in our day jobs firms that would prefer to keep that stuff separate and, and kind of get embarrassed by, or, or kind of feel guilty by, letting people know how much they're charging mm. when um, they're only paying somebody else, you know, paying one of their team a certain amount. How, is there any way that you can, like, are, are there cases where you've been able to kind of break people out of that mentality? It's hard. I, I'm not going to, you know, deny that it's not, it's hard. I think that people, once they get in that mentality, it's very hard. Um, so recently I'll give you an example. I had two clients, um, that competed in the same market. They both did kind of, they, they specialize in kind of publications for higher ed. 
And they both were kind of top of the game and they both were speaking at the same conferences and were doing, were competing quite a lot. And they were both my clients. And so I said to them, you guys should know each other, right? You should talk to, and they're like, oh no, you know, I don't want to, you know, she's my competitor. And I'm, so I sort of forced them to meet. I literally, you know, said, you need to call them, call her. And they become the best of friends. And now when they compete, they talk to each other, you know, and they talk about how much they're pricing so that they're not, they both are pricing about the same so that they're not competing based on price, but on the work itself, which is what you want to compete against um, or on the relationship. And so this has been incredibly beneficial to them, but it took me a while to convince them. And the only way I did it was to force them. I had two other clients. I wish I could name them, but they're famous. Um, oh, I wish I could name them. Uh, pretty famous designers in the hospitality space, in the restaurant space. And one was a really small, um, one, a small firm, and one was a little bit larger firm. And they um, were also didn't know each other, but competed all the time. But they had two very different firms um, and two kind of different styles. And I'm like, you should meet each other. And one of the, the smaller designers said, oh, no, that guy, he's like, he's so cool and young and he's doing such great project. And I'm like intimidated. And the other guy was like, oh, she's a goddess. I can't. She will never. You know, like they both had different perceptions of each other. And I'm like, I just tricked them into having lunch. I invited them both for lunch and then I left. You locked them in an um, elevator. <laughs> yeah. And now, you know, I wouldn't say they're friends, but they are now colleagues and when one person doesn't want to work with a client, they call, they say, hey, you should work with blah, blah, blah. You know, so they're constantly referring work back to each other. So I try to talk about the benefits is that we could, if we talk to each other, we could then not compete on price, but c- compete on the, rela- the quality of the relationship and the quality of our work. Um, and we only benefit. We don't, there's nothing that would hurt us. It's so true. I think mm. like I, you, you say that now so much and I, I definitely think like compared to sort of 15 years ago, there's much more collaboration between leaders and businesses and, and even just like community of, you know, designers going out and doing stuff together um, and getting to know what's going on, you know, elsewhere in their, in their industry. I remember, um, <laughs> I remember pitching a few jobs where I literally only pitched because I knew another agency was pitching. Um, and, and, you know, I never lost to that agency and it was like, okay, I've got to keep this, this record up. And it was so competitive. Yeah. And then it wasn't until a client invited both of us to um, Qatar. So we, yeah. um, and we ended up on a 14-hour flight well, to Qatar yeah. together <laughs> that we, we start talking and we realized that, actually, you're really good. and. Yeah you know you're a really nice person and you got on like a house on fire and (laughs) before that I always felt in my mind I'm sure maybe he didn't but um that we were like arch enemies because I'm also our company names were quite similar and that was the other reason it's like mixed up and that kind of stuff and so um yeah and and it's and then after that it was like we keep in touch and um you know he's still doing great yeah look there's gonna be some assholes in our industry and we know who they are so, but there's most of them are not. They're most really, really nice people, right? So I love that idea. I, I mean, in fact, as a consultant, I know pretty much all the consultants in the, at least in America, or at least the ones that are pretty well known. And we all talk. We're not the best of friends mm-hmm. and we're not, but we're not arch enemies. You know, and we're constantly referring business to each other. 
Well, that's the thing. If you if you can't take on the client yourself, or the client isn't yeah. right for you from even just a personal dynamic or whatever, exactly. Um, it, you would prefer to sort of refer it to someone that you think that their work is great, and then it just makes our whole industry better. I watched a video of someone talking about what it's like to work with you, and they said it's like having a grown up in the room. Oh, good. That was nice. (laughs) (laughs) They've said a lot of things too. (laughs) Is is that how all your relationships are? Like if we're all grown ups, but when it comes to business, we're actually comparatively children. Um, I wonder who said that. Um, (laughs) I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think that it's nice I think I always think of the, I might be an adult. I'm more like a, just another virtual partner. So people, especially ones that are, um, there's, they don't have a partner in business, right? So they just have employees and they have nobody to talk to. I think that I become that partner or what they call the grown up. I don't know if they're children. I think that I'm just much more sensible. I'm less wrapped up in the emotional, like, oh, the client loves me, or I've worked really hard to get this client. I'm much more about what are industry standards, what's good for your business. So I, I come from a very much more um, objective point of view, so I'm less subjective. So, and I'm also a little, I'm tough, you know, which is why I named the book Brutally Honest. I'm tough with my clients um, because I think we get better conversations that way. So I think when they say grown up, I think they mean like, yeah, I can be a mom sometimes or I can be, you know, a tough, a t- a tough parent or the bad guy. And I'm very comfortable with that role and I do it with love right? Because <laughs> I care about them so much. But sometimes they do the stupidest ass stuff. And I'm like, you're doing some stuff that's really bad. And I'll just tell them that way. And it makes a difference in how like, because I communicate that way. I think that's why they think I'm like the adult in the room. Uh, do you have any tips from for designers out there who do feel like they are people pleasers? Um, and want to get a little bit more tough? Yeah, I think it's about, first of all, recognizing that you're a people pleaser and knowing that that influences you and separating your roles out a little bit. So if you are that kind of person, then you might need somebody who's the bad guy in the office, somebody who, so you might separate the new business role, if that's your role, from the person that has to negotiate with the client, right? Mm -hmm. So some of it's around changing your role and leveraging what you can do. And some of it's just getting better at those skills by taking classes or, like I've given web, sh- I've given a lot of workshops on how to say no, because <laughs> so many people have trouble saying no, and uh, people pleasers in general. And so it's just about, I think to me, it's baby steps. You start small by saying, okay, I'm going to say no to this one thing, and also just mm. getting the skills. So there's tons of great books out there now about how to how to push back, how to be you know stronger in your business skills. That's what I'm there for. When I'm with my clients, I give them that extra confidence but I also think it's about thinking this is what I think designers don't do enough (laughs) which is thinking before they act how what I'm saying how does that affect my business and I think if you if they just take a minute not to react quickly but to really think about their decisions they'll be better at not being people pleasers because they'll be able to think more in context Mm mm-hmm I know um, of a couple of examples of where people use different email addresses for different <laughs> parts. Of, like literally they, they invent roles, right? So yeah. 
you know, they can be the nice person, but when it comes to like chasing money, you know, your your email comes from yeah. finance. That's some you know so and so and co uh, com, and so they can get into like finance debt collector mode. Yeah, um, you know, that's a, a nice way to sort of ease into it. Practice your sternness. Yeah, but I also think that's not honest. Like, I'm a big believer in honesty in business, and yeah. so you know, a lot of my clients were like, "Can I just blame you?" Like, I'm going to say my business. And I said, you can do that, but then they're still not going to value your decisions in the end, right? So if you, let's, if you make up this fake, I think it's a funny, it's an ingenious solution for some people. But I do, uh, and I love, those, I love those like ingenious solutions, but I do think it could hurt you in the end because you need to learn those skills yourself. And your clients yeah. need to respect that, that you can push back when you need to. Absolutely. So I think there was one, there's one page in your book as well about um, one running a business is like being a parent uh, and talking about managing clients the way you, you manage children. Um, how do, how, what advice, <laughs> I mean, aside from that sort of analogy, what, what advice can you give around managing clients and making sure that it's sort of an equal relation, equal respectful relationship um, but where you sort of are able to create uh, the structure you want? Yeah. So first of all, just a funny analogy, that, not analogy, but story, that, that one page in my book is the most popular thing that's quoted. <laughs> like, I, you know, I just happened to on a lark one day, think when I was writing the book, like, oh, I just realized all these things I'm advising are just like being a mom. And so I wrote this little stupid little like bulleted list and it became like the most popular feature in the book, which is hysterical. Um, Sometimes you need to just take yourself out of the situation. Yeah. <laughs> Five minutes alone. Be better. <laughs> yeah. So I think a lot of it's around communication, um, that we, we need to communicate with the clients more often and more frequently and more honestly. Um, so I, when I raised my kids, I had a very honest relationship with them. And I think that benefited them. And I think it's the same thing with clients. If you're honest with them, they'll be honest back. But if you sort of want to be passive aggressive or if you want to manipulate them, they will do the same back to you. So I think that's one of the things I would definitely recommend is just communicating more and more frequently and more honestly. Um, I think designers try to avoid the bad news when I think you should embrace it. Sometimes if you're late on a schedule, let them know. Don't make an excuse up. Don't say, oh, you know, I literally had a client say that I left it in the cab when they didn't leave it in the cab. You know, it just doesn't make sense. Like you really should be honest and tell a client, look, I'm running late, but here's how I'm going to catch up later. Right. Um, I think people, as long as you explain it. And even I think the other thing is parents don't want to admit they made mistakes. And I think that's the same thing with making, we're managing clients. We should own up to when we make mistakes because we will. Yeah. And if the client is your advocate and somebody that trusts you and values you. And if you've spent the time building what I call building the love with that client, then if you make a mistake, they'll forgive you. Um, mm. Even big mistakes sometimes they'll forgive you because they love you. Right. But if you have not built the love and if you're just, you know, pleasing them at all times and you really have not focus on making sure that they trust and value you, then they're not going to forgive you as easily. Um, so I think client, client management is about honesty, communication. What else can I mention? Um, so many things, you know, I have this client that literally is proud of the fact that he has like a hundred thousand emails that he has not read in his email box. Designers are very proud of the fact that they do not respond to emails. And that is the most silly thing I've ever heard. If you don't respond to emails, don't expect your clients to. And then they get frustrated when their clients don't respond. I'm like, well, did you respond to them? 
Matter of fact, I did this. I did this. I actually told this story in um, at the Melbourne um, Creative Mornings talk, and somebody came up to me later and said, "My client was in the room when you oh. said that," and they came up to me and said. I'm going to return your emails. <laughs> like, you know, it was great. Like if the more we do those things, so we have to lead by good behavior because mm-hmm. I don't know if we do that ourselves. So we can't get mad at our clients when they misbehave, if we are doing the same thing. So if we're, if we have typos or if we're late or we don't value ourselves, what do you think the clients are going to do? They're going to do the same thing. Um, so I think that is, that is also, and I think also it's just about to me, client, client management is about building the love making sure they love you without being um, taken advantage of. So I always tell people this, like parenting, right? So your kids, you're going to have to yell at them sometimes, right? Uh, You're going to have to punish them sometimes. Um, You're going to have to be the tough guy. Do they ever stop loving you? No. And it's the same thing with clients. They're not going to stop loving you if you have to be tough on them one time. If you've spent the time building the love and the trust. Designers, I think that's why people pleasers are have difficult because they're afraid that they're not going to like them. With your consulting work, what or who has been your most satisfying experience, client consulting experience? <laughs> <laughs> I can't name names. Um, I, I think for me, it, I'm always satisfied when they listen to me <laughs> and they see the results. That's not parenting. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. I just want you to listen. <laughs> Listen, I think a lot of my clients are doing brilliant stuff. Um, So almost all my clients have at least, this is why in my book, I don't know if you saw it, but I have a lot of um, case studies from my clients or from Mm. other designers because I think designers are practicing really interesting stuff. They might be not doing everything right, but they're doing some, some really great stuff that I never even would have thought of, right? So I think all my clients are individually doing one or two things that are amazing or sometimes more. But collectively, they're still doing some dumb stuff because we're human. I actually just worked with a client recently. Um, so I do these full-day business retreats where I spend a lot of time trying to solve all their problems. And I was really nervous because in the, in the morning, I learned everything about them. And I realized they were great and they didn't need me at all. <laughs> and I was really worried because they, they were doing everything right. They captured all the data. They paid attention to budgets. They paid attention to culture and, and general happiness. They did new business. They were specialized. They did everything right. Um, and that was great to see that they were, there was one firm out there that completely did everything right. Luckily I figured out ways I can help them. So I work with one client, um, that pretty much every two years they work with me just to reconnect and say, okay, we did everything you wanted to, you know, you recommended, or we did everything we set ourselves out to. We're doing really well. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? So always looking at what the next thing is. So for instance, when they, they were specializing in, um, of course, nonprofits and found that, you know, and so then one year they decided, okay, we were doing well nonprofits. Now we're going to go to foundation. And then two years later, we decided to focus on, um, what in America are called B Corps, which are companies that do good. And so every year we think about what's next. And I love that. Mm. So I think Mm. companies always think about, okay, can first let's button, let's like tighten the ship now. And once we tighten it, what's next? I think you'll be surprised at how many firms are not doing well and that look really good from the outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think that's the thing that we always compare ourselves to, to everybody else and they're like, oh, but they must be doing such amazing work and they're doing such great business practices when everybody's a little bit messed up. Everybody's human. We all have flaws. 
Yeah, it's funny because I have a I do a workshop every uh, few years. I'm doing one in probably in the spring where I get a bunch of design firm owners in the room for two days and we talk about our businesses, right? And one of my clients who's pretty famous, I work with pretty well-known designers, a lot of them, and he didn't want to go because he's so, you know, everybody respects him so much and he didn't want to show that he was messed up. And I'm like, first of all, you're not messed up. You're just like everybody else. We all have things that we need to work on. There's a reason that, um, you know, like the ones you said that you had on the retreat are, you know, good and there wasn't much wrong with them. It's because they're doing things like that, you know, yeah. like they're constantly trying to be better and look for things that they can be better at rather than assuming that, you know, they're at the top of the game um, because actually once you assume that, the only way is down. Yeah. I think the other thing is you have to realize that some people are at the top of the game, but you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. So one of the things is designers always told me like, they, and this is, a, I think a lot of my clients are like this. Um, they only want to do good work. So every project has to be like the best opportunity. And they don't really, sometimes you have to do some work that is not going to be in your portfolio because it's good money. And they'll be like, oh, but Pentagram doesn't do that or but blah, 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 doesn't do that. They'll mention all the big names. And I'm like, yes, every single one of them does. And, but they won't ever tell you that, you know. Um, I just heard of a famous design firm out um, in Washington, D.C. that's pretty well known. And um, somebody did recently met somebody that had been there seven years. And they were doing like 50% of their work was not stuff that they ever showed on their website, right? And I don't think people realize that other design firms sometimes have to do stuff to pay the bills. It might not be the most creative, but it pays well. And sometimes you need to do some of that work. It doesn't mean you should be executional. Or, you know, it doesn't mean you should take work that's below you, but it doesn't mean that every work has to be like amazing portfolio work. There is going to be work you're doing purely for the money. There's so, other ways of finding reward in that work. Like it could be stuff that you're working on in terms of like how you're, how you're working on developing relationships or another kind of aspect of your business. Like I know you, you, you talked as well about like diversifying if you're just a designer into, you know, <clears throat> strategy and copywriting and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like all of those other opportunities are things to work on. It's just that, you know, too often the final um, way of judging a creative or an agency in our industry seems to be what the case study looks like. Yes. Um, and actually there's a lot of other things that um, you can work on to get reward and meaning out of, out of the work as well as obviously getting stuff that pays more. Um, yeah. And sometimes, you know, like the client doesn't, you know, like what you think is good design might not solve the problem. As long as you've solved the client's mm. problem, then mm. you've succeeded. Mm. And sometimes that work that pays well but isn't portfolio piece worthy allows you to take on those other projects that, you know, you might not have the – that have lower fees because you just want to do it because it's cool work and it's a right. charity or it's a friend you want to help out. It doesn't mean that that one job is standalone. If it helps the business as a whole take on other work that is a little bit more portfolio worthy, then that in itself is – value that's the challenge of uh <laughs> looking at it from the outside because that's what you see you see all the great work but yeah and then if you then take that as gospel and you just do that kind of work it's going to be mega mega hard as a you know to to make money and to run a business yeah exactly and you're going to just have unrealistic expectations mm -hmm. but i do think it's a balance right you need to this is why i spend a lot of time with my clients talking about how do we qualify the right opportunities? Because we are looking at not just is it cool or not just do we like the client or not just that it's a good cause. 
we're looking at subtle things like what's the aggravation factor, how many stakeholders. So I think it's not only about the money. Designers too much look at either two factors. They look at money or creativity. And there's just so many other factors to look at, with, like you said, for taking on projects, whether it's you know growing your portfolio. But I would say that the kind of work that hurts staff morale is something you should never take on, yeah. right? Yeah. I think staff, because you want to keep your staff happy because you love your staff and you want to be able to keep them happy. So everyone's like, they might have to do some crap work, but if, if it hurts staff morale over the long term, that's something you don't want to do. And also it hurts your, um, if you're doing too much of this. So a lot of my clients, they get, they they do actually almost all designers do this, which is they take on new business purely by referrals and they allow the clients to lead the direction of their business mm-hmm. instead of the opposite. So I think I always tell my clients, you have to take control of your business. You shouldn't allow your clients to tell you what kind of work to do. You should decide what kind of work you want to do and who do you want to work with. I think this might have been one of our most practical, like manual, most useful sort of like, episodes ever like you could just sit and just stick this on repeat as you go to sleep and uh, the next morning you'll wake up with pearls of wisdom Um, (laughs) you could print out yeah that's what I'm known for being very practical it's funny because I've been you know I must I I speak up quite a lot and I only I get a lot of these kind of like can you do a workshop can you be a breakout session and and I'm like but what I have to say is still really engaging and exciting and more people need to hear it. So I've become more of a main stage speaker, but it's been a while because people for a long time just wanted really cool, creative people on the main stage and didn't think that business was that interesting. Yeah. But now they're finding that it's important. It's not not just practical, it's important. So this is the uh, time in the podcast where you get to uh, plug, plug, plug. So where can people <laughs> find you? Where can they buy the book? Um, if you want to let, let us yeah. know. Okay, so the book is it's self-published, so it's only available on my website at emilycohen.com or through my um, self-published book, uh, my own publisher called booksellersdaughter.com. Um, and the reason why is it's a nine-color book on the gorgeous uh, mohawk superfine paper, so it was extremely expensive to produce, yeah. and no publisher would have taken it on because it cost me a lot to produce. Um, so that's where you can get it. Um, there are a few booksellers selling it like in certain cities, but not many because they want 50% discount and I can't offer that. <laughs> um, so you can get it on my site. The, mo- the book is awesome. It's just exactly what this podcast was. Very practical, straightforward advice, um, but it's also beautifully designed. I mean, you have to really check it out because the book has lots of information graphics. I designed it or I hired a designer um, with my audience in mind. Um, yeah, and I'm also just a business consultant, so I work with clients across the country, um, across the world, um, helping them take their business to the next level. And I absolutely love what I do, so check me out. Yeah, no, great, and thank you so much for all of your uh, time and advice today. So I think you know it's been such a fantastic, uh, such a fantastic chat. Thank you to uh, Streamtime who helped us do this uh, this podcast. Um, so if you're looking for Uh, creative project management software for your business go to streamtime.net we'll be back in two weeks thanks again emily thank you for having me